What does the cross mean to you? Listen to something I read this week about how different people have kind of answered that question. Some Christians, upon meditating upon the cross of Christ, are left speechless. Others can't say enough. There have likely been more sentences written on the cross of Christ than any other subject in history. Here are just a few. John Stott calls the cross of Christ the greatest and most glorious of all subjects and says there is no Christianity without the cross. Charles Spurgeon said the cross is the very center of our system. J.I. Packer says that the cross takes us to the very heart of the Christian gospel. P.T. Forsyth said, you do not understand Christ until you understand his cross. G. Campbell Morgan said that every living experience of Christianity begins at the cross. And John Calvin said that in the cross of Christ, in the cross of Christ as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines, indeed, in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly than in the cross. So what does the cross mean to you? Today we're going to look at a passage that reveals what the cross should mean to us. Open your Bible to Matthew 27. We're going to start in verse 45, and that should be on page 760 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew 27 and 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone and let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then, behold, the, te- the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks split. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those who were with him guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, This was the Son of God. The title of the message this morning is The Meaning of the Cross. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion today as we spend time, Lord, studying this most holy of subjects, that what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we need you. Father, to open our hearts and our minds that we could receive what you have for us. Father, the message of the cross, it is contrary to our culture. It is contrary to our sinful nature. It is contrary to so much that lies within us, Father. The only way that we could ever really understand the glory of the cross is through your Holy Spirit enlightening us and opening our eyes and softening our hearts to receive this word. So, Father, today we surrender ourselves to you that you would do just that. We surrender ourselves to you today, Father, for your Holy Spirit to come and to search our hearts and to search our lives and to see, Lord, if there's any wicked way in us and to lead us the way of everlasting life. 
We surrender ourselves today for the Holy Spirit to take the word and use it like a sword to convict us where we need to be convicted. That, Lord, we would tremble under the weight of your word if that's what needs to be done. And we would be brought to a place of genuine repentance where we would cry out, what must I do to be saved? We surrender this morning for your Holy Spirit to take the word and use it like a hammer. To break down strongholds that we have erected in our own minds. That keep us from understanding the gospel and receiving Jesus Christ and seeing our need for this Lord. And then we ask you to take our thoughts captive. That our lives would be lived for your glory. Father we surrender for your Holy Spirit today to take your word and use it like a light to dispel the darkness in our hearts. Make us to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ that we would turn to him. And be saved. Father I surrender for your Holy Spirit to guide me. To fill me. To give me your words to speak in your ways and for your glory. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to anything you want said or anything you want done. Let your will done. Let your spirit move. Let your kingdom come in our hearts today. And your will be done in our lives today. As it will be in heaven. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory for you alone deserve it. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now in the Roman Empire, the cross was the most severe form of execution there was. And it was reserved for slaves and the worst type of criminals. Under normal circumstances, Roman citizens could not be crucified. Crucifixion involved attaching the victim either with nails through the wrists or with leather thongs to a cross beam that was attached to a vertical stake. Sometimes blocks or pins would be put under the feet of the victim so that for a period of time he could support himself a bit as he hung from the cross. At other times, the feet were nailed to the vertical stake for the same purpose. As the victim hung, the blood could no longer circulate to his vital organs and he could not breathe. Only by supporting himself on the blocks or the nails underneath his feet and then lifting with his hands could he lift himself up and gain any relief to get a breath or two. And this caused extreme pain. But gradually, exhaustion and pain overcame the will to live. The victim would not be able to lift himself up any longer to get air. And he would suffocate. The process could take hours or it could take days, depending on the strength of the victim and how much they had been beaten beforehand. In the Jewish culture, crucifixion represented the most disgusting form of death imaginable. Because Deuteronomy said, he who hanged, he who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. Yet it is on a cross dying this death that we find Jesus in our text. It is this death of Jesus Christ that gives the cross its meaning. Really the message of Christianity, it is that what Jesus did on the cross It makes life and salvation possible for all who believe. And that is what the cross means. The cross means life and salvation for all who believe. So what does the cross of Christ mean to you? Now, Ultimately, this is a question that each of us has to answer for ourselves. For the cross to mean life and salvation, that is a choice that we must make as individuals. This morning I want to show you three facets 
of the life and salvation that come by way of the cross. And then I want to ask you again, is this what the cross means to you? First, the cross means my debt has been paid. My debt has been paid. In the Old Testament Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer two goats to God. One, he would kill and sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat that was in the most holy place in the temple. The other would be taken outside of the city. The priest would lay his hands upon the goat and he would confess the sins of the nation of Israel. This act symbolically imputed the sins of the people onto the goat who would then be led far out into the wilderness carrying the sins of the people with him never to return. And while this act was performed year after year, there was a problem. The sacrifices never really paid the penalty for the sins of the people. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that it is not possible for an animal to pay the debt that human sin earns. All that really happened year after year was a reminder was made of their sin. A reminder was made of the consequences of their sin. A reminder was made that sin earned death. And a reminder was made that a better sacrifice was needed to take away their sin once and for all. But God had a plan for a better sacrifice to come. And that better sacrifice was Jesus. He came to be the one perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. That's why John the Baptist, when he pointed out Jesus to his followers, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. In verse 50 here, it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and He yielded up His Spirit. The Gospel of John Chapter 19 and verse 30 says that when Jesus cried out there, He cried out, It is finished. What was finished? The sacrificial system was finished. The penalty had been taken care of. Jesus had fulfilled the law. And He had taken the wages of our sin so that our debt could be taken away. And we could be free. Scripture paints an interesting picture of what Jesus did in paying our debt. Paul writes, And you being dead in, your, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way, having nailed it, to the cross. What Jesus did for us on the cross, it made it possible for our sins to be forgiven and for the debt of our sin to be canceled out and for the record of our charges to be erased. When Paul talks about the requirements that were against us, the handwriting of the requirements that were against us, think of it as a written ledger containing all the violations that we have done against God's righteous law. It's in essence, it's an IOU that we wrote to God. We owe you because of our sin. Through our many violations of God's law, we piled up a huge debt. It was a debt so large that there was no way that we could pay it. There was nothing that we could do 
to undo it. If we did good deeds from this day to the end of our lives, those good deeds would not be enough to overcome, to pay off the debt that we had earned. And as such, we had rightfully earned the punishment that comes with that debt, which is death. But when Jesus came, He took that ledger and He canceled our debt by nailing it to the cross. Now there are two pictures that Paul paints in this particular passage by saying that the requirements were taken out of the way. The first is the idea of erasing. Right? In, in this time, some of the parchment that was used by scribes was made from the skins of animals. It was very expensive and it couldn't be wasted. So what they did was they wrote on it with an ink that didn't have acid on it that would bite into the parchment. And this allowed them to be able to clean the parchment and erase whatever writing was on it. Now, if someone had a debt and this writing was on it was written on one of that kind of parchment and it was erased and it was wiped clean, then there would no longer be a, a record of that debt. It would be gone, forever gone, and it could not be brought back. The other idea associated with this is that of a criminal record. At this time, criminals were often punished publicly. And when this was done, there was a piece of parchment posted near them containing the list of crimes meriting this punishment. And when they completed their punishment, that parchment was taken. And they went to probably like the chief judge of the land. And he would take another piece, he would take some more ink, and he would write across that parchment a word that meant that it had been, their debt had been paid in full. It was then sealed with the official seal and stamped and given to the criminal who often and usually kept it with him at all times. That way if someone else said, wait, aren't you the guy that stole? Aren't you the guy that did this? He could pull out his parchment and he could show them with the official seal that that debt had been paid in full. And he could not be charged with that crime again. This is, these are both pictures of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. On the cross, Jesus caused the, the debt that we had earned to be erased. To be erased so fully, the Bible says that God never thinks on them again. How wonderful is that? For, for most of us, for me, I'll say for me, there are things in my past I am deeply ashamed of. I am deeply bothered by things I've done before I came to Christ. Gosh, even after I came to Christ. But all of those things have been wiped away. And on those days when I feel guilt and I feel remorse and I feel shame over those things, one thing I know, that is not God. For my God has erased that debt. He has wiped it away. Scripture promises He never, never brings it up again. The debt was paid so completely that we are free, forever free from condemnation through Jesus Christ. Think about it. The debt has been so completely erased that even if others remember what we've done, and they charge against us. You are this. And you have done that. And I saw you when you did that. We can say. No. 
That debt is paid in full. I am not that person anymore. I am not that action any longer. Those things are gone. In the eyes of Almighty God, the courts of heaven, I am free, forever free from that condemnation. How wonderful. How wonderful is what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Let's just stop and think about that and praise Him. But the cross means that our debt has been paid. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking my sin and my shame. Thank you for erasing the IOU that I had earned. Thank you for paying my sin debt. Telling me that I am free from condemnation. Thank you, Jesus. So the cross means that my debt is paid. And the cross also means that my separation from God has ended. In the Old Testament, there were two main places of worship for the Israelites. One was the tabernacle built during the time of Moses. The other was the temple originally built during the time of King Solomon. Both of these places were basically broke down into three areas. The first area was the common area where sacrifices were made. And any male Israelite could enter this common area. Beyond that, there was a room called the most or the holy place. And inside the holy place was the altar of incense, and the table of showbread. Priests, Levites were the only ones allowed to enter the holy place. And, and only during the course of their service, they couldn't just go there and hang out. And then beyond that, there was a place called the most holy place. And separating the holy place from the most holy place was a thick, elaborate curtain. And the most holy place was where the ark of God was. That's where the mercy seat was. Those were the, they represented the very presence of God. And it wasn't just anyone who was allowed to enter the most holy place, go through the sacred curtain and enter the presence of God. It was only the high priest, one person, the entire nation. And he could only go once a year. And he went in first by making a sacrifice for himself. Then he went in and he made a sacrifice for the people. Again, he could only go in in the course of his duties as the high priest. He, he could not just go in and hang out in the presence of Almighty God. Now that curtain was God's design. The temple, the tabernacle, all of that was designed by God. And that curtain... It was a constant reminder that sinful man cannot go into the presence of a holy God. Every time an Israelite went into the common area, they looked to the place that was the, the holy place and they knew we're not clean. We can't go there. And every time the priests and the Levites were in the holy Place And they looked at the veil that separated the most holy place. They would say, we're not holy. We can't go there. And even though there was a measure of, of God's work in their lives, there was always a reminder that they were separated from God. That their relationship with God, their service to God, it was always hindered. It was never all that it was intended to be. It was a far cry from the days of the garden when God came in the cool of the evening. To walk with Adam and Eve. 
But on the cross, something happens. First, we see in verse 46 that there's dark, verse 45 that there is darkness that covers the land. And then about the ninth hour, Jesus, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Jesus experiences something that had never happened before, never happened since. He experienced separation from God. Part of taking our sin upon him was Jesus experiencing that separation from God. And as he is experiencing being separated from God, and he goes on and carries the weight of our sin and taking hell in our place, and he cries out with a loud voice and he yields up his spirit, something amazing happens in verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened. Many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised coming out of the graves. After his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. Now, just some practical points on this. The veil tearing. Significant. It's not a coincidence, right? It's not an accident. It doesn't, given the, the wording of it, right? It's not that the hooks holding it fail and they fall. It rips right down the middle, according to the wording. And the ripping is from top to bottom. We're specifically told. Now, I believe that all scriptures given by inspiration of God. Therefore, there are no incidental details. Everything matters. So what are the odds of this being a coincidence of it just so happening that the, the, the earth quakes and the veil tears from top to bottom at the moment Jesus dies? Well, that's non-existent. Of course, that's not what happened. Instead, this is an act of God, a testimony of God. Up until this time, that veil separated man from God. You cannot come into my presence. You're not holy. You're not righteous. You are not able to be here. But then Christ pays our debt. He takes our sin. And at the moment of his death, God shakes the earth and God tears the veil from top to bottom. I believe top to bottom shows that it was God who did it and not man, not a coincidence. Opening up. The way to the most holy place, the very presence of Almighty God. In this moment, what God was telling us is that Jesus took our separation so that we could have access to Him. It's what the author of Hebrews understood. He said, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that's the most holy place, by the Blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he consecrated for us. Notice, through the veil that is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus, as our great high priest, he made that one sacrifice for sins. He he took our separation to give us His access to Almighty God. Having completed it, having finished it, 
God tore the veil in half, showing that access was now granted to all people, to Him at any time, but only through the blood of Jesus, only through Christ. What Jesus has done in giving us this access, ending our separation from God, it gives us the ability to enter God's presence, and it describes it in a couple of ways with with boldness and with a clean conscience. With boldness means that we don't go in with fear. When we go to God, we don't go trembling as slaves of a harsh master. It's looking for a reason to smite us. In the army, I had a, a platoon sergeant. And he did not like me. Obvious character flaw. And any time word came, Sergeant Keeler, won't you, Ross? Fear and dread came over me. Because I knew no good thing would come from this. At some point, he was either already angry at me. Or he was going to ask me questions and then ask me if I was just stupid or trying to tick him off. He was, it was not going to end well. If I ever felt I needed to go see Sergeant Keeler, I went with fear and trembling because I knew at any moment he was going to take offense to something I had done and make my life miserable. Sadly, there are some who kind of feel that's how they ought to go into God's presence. Terrified. Fearful. Trembling that God is just almost angry at them. And if they say the wrong word, they they pray in the wrong way, they ask the wrong request, God's going to say, enough, I've had all I can stand to you. And He's going to smite us. Jesus ended all of that. And He made it possible that we can go boldly, boldly into His presence. I mean, that's an awesome thought, right? To go boldly into the presence of Almighty God. We go boldly in there, not not because we've been good and not because we've done great and not because we've got it all squared away, but because Jesus has paid our debt. Because we have been born again and we've been adopted as His sons and His daughters and we are always welcome. I mean, you just think about all the Bible says about prayer and inviting us to come. All of that was God's idea. All of that is God saying over and over and over again, I love you. I want to be with you. And I want you to be with me. We are able to go into His presence boldly because of what Jesus Christ has done. Again, this was significant to the original hearers of this because the high priest did not go boldly into the most holy place. For truly, if he went in in the wrong way, without the proper motives, without the proper sacrifices, God would smite him. God would kill him right there on the spot. That is not the fear that we face. We are welcome always and any time before our God, before our Father. But we also don't go in with inferiority. Right? We, we don't have to hesitate to spend time with God because of our past failures. We don't have to say, who am I 
that I should pray and enjoy the presence of God? Who am I that I should call upon God and cast my cares upon Him? Who am I to to expect that, that in His presence there's the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore because of what I've done in the past? Because God, again, that is taken away. We don't come in and say, God, I'm not as good as as this person. Or God, I know that I'm not as righteous and holy as them. We come in with a conscience that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Taking it away, really, as believers in Christ. Our past, as we know that God has forgotten our past. And God never thinks on it any longer. Our consciences should be as clean as that. We should never feel inferior or inadequate because of our past failures. Jesus has taken care of that. So we can go to God confidently that we are welcome, that we are invited. With a clear conscience, assured that God is just as happy that we're coming into His presence to spend time with Him as He would have been if it were Billy Graham Or anyone else that we would call Christian famous. We are His dearly loved children. Our consciences have been cleansed. And we are assured of our welcome. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, we have an all-access pass to enter and enjoy the presence of Almighty God anytime, day or night. I mean, how, how wonderful is that no matter where we are no matter what we're doing no matter what's going on because of Jesus Christ we are welcome our separation has been ended God says come to me let's take just a minute again and and praise thank Jesus for the fact that the cross means our separation with God has ended And we are welcome in His presence. Jesus, thank You. Thank You for ending the separation between God and man. Thank You for making me qualified to go into my Father's presence and just cast my cares upon Him or just enjoy Spending time with Him. Thank You for making it so that I can go boldly. Thank You for making it so that I can go in without feeling inferior. Thank You, Jesus, for what You've done in my place. So the cross means my debt is paid. My separation from God has ended. And then my salvation is real. It says in verse 54 that when the centurion saw all of this, and all of this is significant, he saw the disturbances of nature that happened at Christ's death, saw the earthquake, all the things that went on. And all of that convinced the centurion that Jesus, that he was a righteous man. But knowing that Jesus was crucified for claiming to be the Son of God, and that this claim was the real reason that the Jews had wanted Him dead, the centurion concludes and confesses that Jesus is who He claims to be. He feared greatly, saying, Truly, 
this was the Son of God. It's easy for us to miss the dramatic change that happened in this instant. Moments before, this hardened centurion would have taken no thought to Jesus. How many many wars had he fought for Rome? How many people had he killed with his sword? How many Jews had he crucified in his life? How many times had he stood by, watched them in agony? Listen to them cry out for mercy. How many Jews did he take a spear and break their legs so that they weren't able to stand any longer? He took no thought to it. He barely thought of them as human. When he nailed them and when he watched them die, he felt no guilt. He felt no remorse. When they died, he typically either left them on the cross as a testimony And let the scavengers eat them. Or he took them down and he tossed them in a ditch behind the area. Where the scavengers ate them and they just rotted. That's what he thought of Jesus. Just moments before. He was no more significant in this man's life than anyone else he had ever killed. Any other Jew he had ever crucified. When he nailed Jesus to the cross, he didn't anticipate anything more. Than watching him die and tossing him to a ditch to be eaten by the scavengers. But after seeing the way Jesus died, crying out for God to have mercy on his murderers, the things that happened at the moment of his death, his view of Jesus changed. At this moment, he did not consider Jesus to be just another Jew. But he recognized that he was who he said he was. He was the Son of God. Now for sure, his view of what that meant needed some refining. And there was some truth, some understanding that he needed to come to. But I do believe that this centurion was converted in this moment. I believe at this moment when he recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. He was as saved as the thief that hung on the cross that said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the fact that his view of Jesus and what was happening there changed, it is significant. Scripture teaches that our view of Jesus and our view of the cross, that it reveals much about our spiritual condition. Look at what Paul said. So for the message of the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. The message of the cross divides people into two groups. Those who are perishing. Those who are being saved. Scripture places all people. Within one of those two groups. Either we are perishing. Which means exactly what it sounds like. It means to be utterly lost or destroyed. Spiritually speaking, perishing means that one is headed towards judgment, still condemned for their sin. Or we are saved. We are being saved. And that means, again, just what it sounds like. My debt has been paid. 
My separation from God has ended and I now have eternal life. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians, and you can read the chapter this week, to give two reasons people will consider the message of the cross to be foolishness. He says that some will hear the message of the cross and they consider it foolishness because they're offended by it. You know, the message of the cross, it includes a lot that goes with it. It includes sin, condemnation, judgment to come, accountability to God, and our inability to save ourselves. There are some that when they hear these things, they are offended by that to the very core of their being. That they're offended because you're saying their sin is every bit as serious as everyone else's sin. They're offended by the truth that they are ultimately accountable to God who will hold them to the same standard everyone else is going to be held to. The school about to start, every teacher knows. Not everybody thinks they ought to be held to the same standard, do they? What happens in school happens with this. Well, my child, well, me, well, my reasoning, you don't understand. And yet, Scripture declares that they will be held to the same standards as the others, and it offends them. Some are offended by the truth that they're guilty in the eyes of God and condemned because of their sin. What do you mean that my sin is so serious? That I'm worthy of God's judgment. What do you mean? That I'm guilty in the courts of God. I'm a pretty good old boy. It offends them. They're offended by the truth. They cannot save themselves. What do you mean I can't just pick myself up by my bootstraps? What do you mean I can't turn over a new leaf? What do you mean I can't just square myself away? It offends them. They're offended by the truth that apart from repentance and faith in Jesus, they will go to hell because they feel they're good people. Now, I may not be perfect, but I'm not a sinner. I've heard that so many times and always want to reply. The fact that you're not perfect means that you're a sinner. Well, I believe in in a God. Oh, but that's not enough. Scripture says you must believe in Jesus. Well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm still going to live in my sin. Oh, well, that's not enough. Scripture declares we must repent of our sin. Turn from it, confess it, and forsake it. And they're offended. They're offended at the reality that the horror of the cross demonstrates the severity of their sins. I mean, the cross, when you really understand what Jesus endured, starting with the mockings and the beatings that led to the crucifixion and the death, then the spiritual aspect of of our sin and our punishment being poured out upon Him, it's it's a horrific thing to study. If you ever watch The Passion of the Christ, it does about as good a job of showing what happened as anything else. I read a story this week about that. When they flogged Jim Caviezel, the guy that played Jesus, they actually had big burly men flog him. But he had something on his back that was meant to take the blow because they wanted it to look as real as possible. And one guy 
reached a little too far and went over what was protecting his back and actually hit him. He took one blow of what it meant to be flogged before he went to the cross. And it nearly caused him to pass out. It hurt so bad. What nearly caused Jim Caviezel to pass out with one strike, Jesus took over and over and over again. And all the horror of what Jesus endured, it testifies to the evil of our sin. It testifies to the wickedness of our actions and our attitudes and our reactions and our values. And that horrifies people that we would say that their sin is that severe and it offends them. But then others, they hear the message of the cross and consider it foolishness because it just sounds like so much nonsense to them. I mean, God, if there is a God, that he would come and take on human flesh and die a horrible death like that. For the sins of humanity. And then come back to life in three days. Rubbish. Nonsense. You insult my intelligence. By saying such things. They wonder how any rational intelligent being could believe such a fairy tale. Haven't we evolved beyond that in our day? They can't imagine. That that if there was a God. That he would care about personal morality to the point that he would hold us accountable to it. Particularly to an old, outdated, puranical moral code. Come on! Surely you see that the world's different now. Rubbish. In their mind, if there was a God, he would be so far removed from mankind, he would not care how we lived so long as we didn't hurt anyone else. And it's just utter nonsense to believe anything else. They demand in their feelings of superior intelligence. They be able to touch, taste, see, smell. There is a God before they would even consider believing in that. And anything that does not conform to their man-centered way of thinking such as the message of the cross. It is just rejected as so much nonsense. It's like the tooth fairy. No big deal. Don't worry about it. Silliness. Now people like that abound in our culture. Maybe someone in here that falls into one of those two categories. The Apostle Paul says that this rejection of the cross testifies to something about our spiritual condition. Those who reject the cross whether because they find it offensive or because they find it foolish, Paul says it reveals they're perishing. If I look at the message of the cross and I find that that whole concept offensive, kind of angers me, she would say that about me, it reveals that I am perishing. If I look at the message of the cross and think it sounds like a fairy tale, that one should just reject and move on with life about, it testifies something, that I am perishing. However, if I look at the cross, and what I see is a powerful act of a loving God that secured my salvation, 
and provides me with eternal life, then that testifies of something too. I am saved. When believers look at the cross, we understand what Paul meant when he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when we look at the cross and we see our salvation secured, our Savior sacrificed for our benefits, and we can't possibly glory in anything else. We can't possibly think that we have earned it, that we have done it. But that is so contrary, that view is so contrary to our human way of thinking that the only way Someone can go from thinking that the cross is foolishness and offensive and nonsense to something they would glory in as if they had been born again. A view of the cross that sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because salvation has been secured. It only comes to those who have had their minds renewed and their lives transformed. Natural man will never see glory in the cross. They will see offense. They will see foolishness. They will never see glory. Only those who can look at the cross and say truly, truly that was the Son of God are saved. Only Jesus can bring this kind of a change. You're here today and you see the cross as foolish or offensive or nonsense. You are unable to fix that thought process on your own. You cannot just try harder and suddenly believe the cross is something worth glorying in. The only way that mindset will ever be changed is if you repent of your sins. You call upon Jesus Christ. And you are born again in that moment. He changes you. The point I want us to get from this. What do you see when you view the cross? If you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as your salvation. You can be certain your salvation is real. It wasn't an emotional experience that happened one day. You weren't pressured by a slick-talking evangelist. Nobody talked you into anything. That sort of change, that is a God change and a God change only. And when you look at the cross and that's what you can see, you can say, I know, I know, I know I'm saved. I know that I've been born again because my view of things has changed Beyond anything I could change on my own. Let's take a minute. Let's rejoice. That we can look at the cross and we can see its meaning as the certainty of our salvation. Thank you Jesus. That we can know for sure we're saved. Thank you Jesus. That we can know that our salvation experience was not emotionalism it wasn't pressure it wasn't eloquence it was you 
doing something mighty and wonderful in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that we can see the glory of the cross. So what does the cross mean to you this morning? Does it mean that your debt has been paid? Does it mean that your separation from God has ended? Does it mean that your salvation is real? And if you would have to honestly answer, well, no, the cross doesn't mean those things to me. I want you to know that it can. And more importantly, it should. It should. Everything about the cross testifies to God's desire to save you. The cross testifies that God loves you and sent His Son to die in your place. The cross testifies that though your sins are grievous, provision has been made. The cross testifies that you are invited to experience God's life and God's salvation. However, it's not enough to know what the cross is meant to mean. You must respond. You must choose Jesus so that the cross can mean these things to you today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. The primary way that we respond to the message of the gospel is by believing and receiving. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again. Believe that Jesus' death on the cross is the only righteousness that you possess. Believe that God will save you when you call upon Him because of what Jesus has done. And then you must make the decision to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. No one can make that decision for you. You must choose Him. You must call upon Him. You must cry out to the Lord. If you're here this morning and you want to go beyond the cross, meaning something you can have, can be free from condemnation, I I can have access to God, I can have assurance of my salvation to something you possess, I am free from condemnation. I do have access to God. I am certain of my salvation. I do. I want you to raise your hand right now as a way of saying, Jesus, I want what you have provided for me on the cross. All right. We're going to pray. And as we pray, if you have raised your hand, or even if you didn't, but you know you need to, you call out to Jesus. Say something as simple as, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the only sinner's prayer given in the Bible. The Bible says that man went away saved. You let the cry of your heart reach up to Christ in faith. You call upon Him to save you, and He will save you. Let's pray.